Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. That was indeed a helpful video. It kind of sets up some of what we're going to be talking about today, this idea of exile. I didn't realize the middle schoolers had to be in here. You're really going to feel exiled sitting through this. Banished might be a better word. So if you would stand for our scripture reading. As I mentioned the last few weeks, we are starting this new series. It's coming from First Peter. So we will be in First Peter for the next six weeks looking at various passages. And this is a short one today. So I'm just going to read the first couple of verses from First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord can be seated. George Barna's research group, you may be familiar with this, they conducted a survey in 2017 to try and determine what cities in America were the most post-Christian cities in our country. And so they randomly chose 76,000 people from all over the country, and over a period of seven years, These folks were asked about things like their belief in God, the importance of faith to them, their church attendance, and a number of other questions designed to get at traits that people had or didn't have as a way of understanding this post-Christian phenomena. And in Barna's words, quote, it may come as no surprise that the influence of Christianity in the United States is waning. Rates of church attendance, religious affiliation, belief in God, prayer, and Bible reading have all been dropping for decades. By consequence, the role of religion in public life has been slowly diminishing, and the church no longer functions with the cultural authority it held in times past. These are unique days for the church in America as it learns what it means to flourish in a new post-Christian era. Now perhaps you've heard me or someone else up here in some other setting use this phrase, a post-Christian culture, or the end of Christendom, it sometimes is stated, or a post-Christian era. And Barna describes extremely well what that phrase means. We live in a time when religion is just not that important to a growing number of people, and the church is not considered a reliable or a sought-after voice on the various social, political, or economic issues facing our nation. The church, in other words, has been marginalized. Christianity, if you will, has been elbowed out of the center of the culture, and now it resides on the fringe of the culture. Really simple way to think about this, maybe a silly way, but a good way to bring sports into this subject would be to think of it like this, that Christianity and the church used to be in the culture's starting lineup. 
both played a lot of minutes and contributed to the culture. But similar to what happens to older players in any sport, over the last couple of decades, Christianity and the church have been relegated to the bench. And today, Christianity and the church in our culture barely play at all. And there are all sorts of opinions about the various factors that have caused our culture or contributed to our culture becoming post-Christian, and we aren't going to wade into all that. But for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, I've listed four books on the screen where this kind of stuff is examined in greater detail. So the first one is called To Change the World. It's by a smart guy named James Hunter. It will require effort, energy, and a lot of work to get through it, but it gets way down into the details of how we ended up where we have ended up. The next one is called A Peculiar People by a guy named Rodney Clapp. It's an excellent book. He's using that word peculiar, taking it right out of First Peter, actually, uh, in talking about a peculiar people, meaning the church and how the church is to be in this new world that we live in. The next one is called Uncommon Decency, one of the most, maybe the most accessible of the books that are listed there. A very good book to read and one that has a lot to say along the lines of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. It's by a Fuller professor named Richard Mao, and in the book he talks about just the need to be gentle and kind and respectful as we interact with current culture. And then the last one's called Faithful Presence. Our, uh, some of our women are going through this at their Tuesday morning study, and this book is really about how the church as a community can be missional in the culture in which we live. In Barna's survey, just as a side note, the Sacramento Valley area, Sacramento Valley area, where we are down through to Stockton, came in as the 15th most post-Christian area in the nation. So it's already been mentioned, but for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about this idea of living Christian in a post-Christian culture. How we navigate the unique challenges and issues in a culture increasingly disinterested in and unimpressed with Christianity. Think for a moment about those you live near or you work with or you go to school with or that you interact with through your children's school or through the teams they play on. It's likely that some of those people who come to mind, maybe even the majority of those people, have little to no religious history of their own or Christian memory, we might say. Some of them probably did not grow up in a situation where faith or church was on their radar screen much. And so the Christian faith has not been part of their life story. And the question is, how do you interact with and love and be present with these friends? How do you manifest the reality of the kingdom of God in these relationships. Or think about this. In the midst of the ongoing political turbulence in our country and the debates going on all the time about President Trump and about Judge Kavanaugh, things like this, the racial issues that continue to divide our society, the sexual violence and abuse issues that we've seen in Hollywood and in other places of late, same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage, 
and gender identity issues, things like road rage, school rage, and just the out-of-control anger people increasingly have about anything that doesn't go their way. Think about all those things. And these subjects are frequently debated and they're discussed with hardly any reference at all or regard for the spiritual issues that are embedded in those things or the moral factors that come along with a theistic worldview, this idea that there is a God and we live for Him and under Him. The important conversations in the public square ignore, for the most part, the Christian perspective and the church's voice. So again, the question, how do we live as Christians in a culture where Christianity is losing respect? And these are absolutely critical questions for us to consider. And here's why it's critical, one of the reasons why. It's critical because it is so easy to navigate the culture poorly. It is so easy to live poorly as Christians in a culture like we now live in and respond in ways that further alienate the culture from God and from the church. Now, you come here, if you come here, with any regularity, you'll hear me, I have a bad habit of doing this, of talking about the next thing we're going to talk about as the most important thing. But if you kind of hear all that, eventually you go, well, they all can't be important. So at some point, he's just hyping us, and it's rhetoric, and it's probably true. I'm sure I overstate that. But this subject, this series, these issues... The details of what we're getting into over the next six weeks, these things are crucially important for you. They're crucially important for your life. They're crucially important for how you think of your family and how you navigate your family through this chaos. And they are absolutely crucially important to the soul of Oak Hills Church and how we see ourselves in this current culture. So let's start with a little bit of background from the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter to different groups of Christians who were scattered around the Roman Empire. They were actually in a particular region of the Roman Empire where modern-day Turkey is right now. But they were scattered in different pockets within that area and they were living in a pagan culture. So they're in the Roman Empire, Rome is the occupying nation where they were, and it was a very pagan culture they lived in. The letter was written in the early 60s, so approximately 30 years after Jesus died and rose again and ascended. And the Roman emperor during this time Peter wrote this letter was a guy named Nero. And Nero was not a nice fellow to put it mildly. He was an egomaniac, and like many of the Roman leaders, he wanted to leave a legacy through his building projects, his construction projects. And so he secretly burned much of the city of Rome to the ground to then be the hero who would be remembered for building it back up. But his plan was foiled when after all this, these fires happened, all these Roman citizens were displaced by the fires, Many of them were suffering, they couldn't find food, 
they were homeless, there was all this despair that infected the city of Rome. So Nero suddenly needed an alternative plan, a scapegoat, to increase the morale of the citizens. And so he spread a lie that the fires that had burned down the city of Rome had been lit by the Christians in the city. And this, as you can imagine, turned the culture against Christianity and against the church, and there was a sharp rise in suffering, there was intense persecution, there, was, there were martyrs all over the place, the pressure was up, the discrimination was up, and all of a sudden you had this scenario where Christianity and the church were over here, and the culture was over here. First Peter was written to Christians, and to a church, in other words, that was on the margins of society. The people who first read this letter were in a very difficult cultural situation, like ours, except it was a lot more challenging. They faced hostility because they were Christian. They were persecuted in part because of their faith, and we don't really face a lot of that in our context. They were a people in exile. Now think of the video we saw. The people that Peter was writing to were a people in exile. They were living in a culture that was not their home and it was not favorable toward their values or toward their morals or toward their ways. They had been marginalized. And it seems to me that there are three responses. There are obviously many more, but there are at least three responses that Peter is encouraging them to have to this cultural situation they are in. And frankly, I think it spills directly over to our situation as we dive into this new series. So the first response, he encourages them to embrace exile. And I want to be clear about something right from the beginning of this series, because this is going to come up frequently throughout these weeks. In today's culture, as the church is increasingly marginalized and relegated to the bench, and as Christianity is increasingly dismissed. The temptation Christians face is to respond with what we'll call a siege mentality. In other words, Christians are tempted to adopt an us versus them paradigm. And this has become the all too common Christian response in the times in which we live. Christians, in other words, react to the culture by circling the wagons, hunkering down, and choosing to fight back. And this is a temptation. Meaning it's a temptation to do wrong, to respond poorly, to respond in a way that is not the way of Jesus. Because this kind of response is nowhere to be found, as we will see, in the book of First Peter, it's nowhere to be found in the example of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter uses the example of Jesus to pitch an alternative way of responding, and it's nowhere to be found in the teaching of Jesus. In First Peter 1 and verse 1, Peter addresses his letter to exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All these areas located where modern-day Turkey is right now, Peter is writing to primarily Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people, but he uses the familiar idea and metaphor of exile. And Jewish people, as we saw in the video, were intimately familiar with what living in exile was all about. He calls these folks 
exiles. And they would, that would have triggered in their mind, exile means living away from home. For the Jewish person, exile meant living away from Jerusalem. Exile meant being a stranger in someone else's land. At points in Israel's past, they were exiles in Egypt, they were exiles in Assyria, they were exiles in Babylon. And Peter now calls his readers exiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire. If you flip to the end of the book, 1 Peter 5, I think it's verse 12 or 13, somewhere in there, Peter refers to she who is in Babylon sends her greetings. So just to tie this in, he's referencing Rome and kind of using this cryptic term Babylon to refer to Rome. And as we will see, he instructs his readers to embrace their exile. Accept it. Because while they are exiles, Peter calls them, again, in verse 1, God's elect. So they are exiles, but they're God's elect. They're his people. Their identity is as his people. So he is with them in their exile. For the Jewish people of the Old Testament, the center of the universe was the city of Jerusalem. It was the city of God. His temple was there. His presence was there. His work in the world was headquartered there. When you're from Wisconsin, the center of the universe is Green Bay, for obvious reasons. For them, it was Jerusalem. And Jews believed that God would always protect Jerusalem. It would never falter or fail because he would never let it. But in 586 B.C., about 600 years before Peter is writing, the unimaginable happened. The Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem was obliterated. The temple of God was destroyed, and thousands of people were killed in the process. Many who survived the invasion were forced to leave Jerusalem, walk a million miles to Babylon, and live in exile in Babylon far away from home, far away from their beloved Jerusalem, and, they thought at least, far from the presence of their God. Now, it's easy to imagine the questions swirling in their heads on their long trek to Babylon. Where is God? What happened? Has He abandoned us? Has He kind of given up on us? How could something like this occur? Is the world unraveling? and falling apart? Is God still God? Is he still in charge? Is he still reigning over things? Questions we may be asking in the midst of our own culture. Peter is writing to people who were living in exile. They were on the fringe of the culture, outsiders looking in. And yet here's the thing. He never instructs them to fight back or to join with the zealots and try to bring down the Roman Empire. He starts his letter by reminding them of who they are. Exiles, who are God's elect, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Do you hear the Trinitarian reference? God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ the Son. Your identity, in other words, is in the Trinity. You are His people. Your status and position and role and power in the culture is whatever it is. 
You are living in exile, but you belong to the Trinity. You have been immersed into the reality of the Trinity. And this is who you are primarily. And this is really important for us individually and as a congregation. If you listen to Christians these days, it quickly becomes apparent how frustrated and angry some are at the culture. They're disgusted with its immorality. They're fearful of the culture's celebrated sins. They feel attacked in a variety of ways, and they're angry about it. And some think their anger is a sign of their faithfulness to God and commitment to His truth. But this siege mentality, the us versus them, the anger, the fighting back, is not the way of Jesus. And it is not what Peter instructs his readers to do. 1 Peter 1, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.11 Live good lives among the pagans. 1 Peter 2.17 Remember Nero, bad dude, really bad dude. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 3.9 Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, Repay evil with blessing, because to this you, people of the Trinity, were called. Embrace exile. Accept that we do in fact live in a post-Christian culture. Accept our status as exiles, but remember our identity as people of the Trinity. And here's the key. Accept all of this as good news, not bad news. This isn't some unfortunate development. This is an outstanding development. Jesus is still king. God is still in charge. He's not scratching his head trying to figure out, what am I going to do about this? Putting it bluntly, Christians lost the culture war. And apparently, Christians lost because God has a better way for his people to bring his goodness into this world. So the culture war might not have been a war he ever wanted us to fight in the first place. In the words of James Hunter, this is not on the screen, so just hear it. The goal for Christians then is not and never has been to take back the culture or to take over the culture or to win the culture war, or to save Western civilization. Ours is now emphatically a post-Christian culture, and the community of Christian believers are now, more than ever, spiritually speaking, exiles in a land of exile. Christians must come to terms with this exile. Embrace exile as people of the Trinity. God is still God. 
He's working out his purposes in his way and in his time. He has a plan that is unfolding. So embrace the exile. Remember your identity as people of the Trinity and look for God on the move. Second response Peter's encouraging these people to have and us is faithful presence. Peter writes this letter to the exiles who are scattered in modern-day Turkey who were under pressure from the Roman Empire. Now, rewind about 600 years, and you heard some of this in the video. But 600 years earlier, many of these Israelites are living in exile in Babylon, and there were false prophets, fascinating development, who were telling these people living in exile that they were going to be there for two years, and then God was going to come and fix everything and bring them back to Jerusalem, and they would live happily ever after. That was the message of these certain prophets. The only trouble was these prophets were lying. They weren't speaking for God. They were saying what the people in exile wanted to hear. And what they wanted to hear was, this won't last. So the prophet said, it's not going to last. God told me to tell you, you got two years of this, and then we go home and live happily ever after. So a real prophet, a guy named Jeremiah, wrote a letter to the exiles who were living in Babylon, and this is what he says. It's in Jeremiah 29. It's verses 4 through 7, but it's worth reading the whole chapter if you have time some point. Uh, Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they, may, they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, the exiles were told to settle into their new lives in Babylonian culture, to be present there, to build their families, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city where they were now living. God wanted them to live as his people in the culture of Babylon. They were to be then a faithful presence right where they were. They were to live and work and raise their families as a demonstration of the goodness and of the shalom of God. They were to be salt and light in the culture, testifying through their words and their actions to the reality of God's kingdom, showing the alternative way of God's kingdom. So what do we do in a post-Christian culture? How do we respond to it? How do we live in it? Be a faithful presence right where we are. When we're scattered in our individual lives and when we gather in our communal life, be a faithful presence that demonstrates the goodness and the shalom of God's kingdom. See, you have a calling in your world, wherever your world is. 
It's not a calling to change what you can't change or influence what you have no power to influence. So it is not a calling to, quote, change the world, but a calling to be faithfully present in your world, in your particular situation, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, on the team, in the circle of friends. God has us where we are to demonstrate his good news and spread his shalom, to show people what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. David Fitch, writing about this, says, Faithful presence names the reality that God is present in the world and that he uses a people faithful to his presence to make himself concrete and real amid the world's struggles and pain. When the church is this faithful presence, God's kingdom becomes visible and the world is invited to join with God. Faithful presence is not only essential for our lives as Christians, it is how God has chosen to change the world. See, one of the things to remember is that the world weighs heavy on those around us. The people you work with, live near, go to school with, interact with, the world weighs heavy on them. Now, people may not admit this, They may not know what to do about it. They may not know how to talk about it. They may be very uncomfortable to talk about it. But you can be sure of this. The world weighs heavy on them. I mean, it's crazy what goes on these days. And you can be sure. People, doesn't matter if they have faith or not. People are concerned. And the people all around you, many of them, are concerned about what is happening in the world. Another thing to remember, and you can bank on this, There are difficult issues and challenges unfolding in the lives of those with whom we interact every single day. And oftentimes, they're carrying this all by themselves, and no one knows. And they feel the burden. It's not as though rejecting God and rejecting His ways somehow sets us on a course to all of a sudden revel and flourish in life. I mean, those who do follow God experience the challenge of it. Certainly, we shouldn't be so silly to think those who aren't have suddenly discovered the key to life and they're exempt from all the troubles that happen in this world. Stuff happens, and it can be hard, and it can be painful, and there are people in your life right now who are living in that difficult space. And our mission as people of the Trinity is to love and to be present with and demonstrate the reality of God's kingdom, shalom. So if we look and listen, we will see and we will hear the ache of the human soul. See, one reason a post-Christian culture is an excellent development, one reason a post-Christian culture, in my opinion, is the work of God himself, is because now There's a general realization, a general acceptance that all of the chips are being set, are being bet on some humanistic philosophy. We aren't hedging our bets anymore. We're not saying, well, I'm going to put a little bit over here on hedonism and I'll put a little bit over here on spirituality and Christianity. We're taking all the chips and we're saying, it's all over here on some humanistic philosophy. We're going all in on the humanism. We're past the spiritual. 
We're past the metaphysical. We're past the crazy lunacy that there's a God. It's full speed ahead into this idea of humanistic flourishing. We don't need God. There is no God. In fact, we are God, and it's all in in that direction. Does that not sound like something God would stir up for obvious reasons? See, the goodness of post-Christendom is that people are pushing all in on humanism, and it won't deliver on its promises because it can't. So people all around us at any given time are going to discover the emptiness of this pursuit. They're all around you, going all in. And they're going to find out, boy, this isn't it. So we live as a faithful presence and demonstrate the alternative way of the kingdom. See, faithful presence, make sure you get this, is very different from fix. Faithful presence is very different than convince. Faithful presence is very different than change. Faithful presence is radically different from fight. Radically different from argue. Faithful presence is about being with. In the confidence that the Spirit of God is present and active. Let me give you a prime example of faithful presence that you can live out this afternoon. It's real simple. Manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit to the people around you. And if you do, you will demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God. And again, here's the beauty of God's work in this world. We now live in, the, in a world where the fruit of the Spirit catches people's attention because it's so different from the norm. Think about it. Manifest the fruit of the Spirit toward other people. Love them. Be patient in life. In all the nooks and crannies. Silly thing. Go to the grocery store. This happened to me not long ago. I was at a grocery store. This guy, I was in line. This guy was, I love the grocery store, by the way, so I go a lot for all sorts of reasons. But this guy was behind me, and he had a bag of ice. I maybe told you this. He had a bag of ice. And it was about 1,000 degrees outside. And so I got up to the line. I gave all my stuff. They checked it all out. And for some reason, the card thing didn't work. So he said, we're going to have to put all this back in a bag and go over here. You're going to have to go over here. This thing's not working. And this guy behind me starts to unravel. I think he thought he was going to walk out with a bag full of water. So they take my stuff, put it over this next one, and he starts stomping and sighing and making all these pontificating critiques about how bad this grocery store was. And he's just you know, fire coming out of his nostrils. And I just kind of looked at him and said, you want to go ahead? Well, yeah, you know, I'm going to have a bag of water when I get out of here if I don't, so I let him go. And I get up to the thing, and the, I go through the deal, and the lady says to me, boy, I'm so grateful for your patience. And I'm thinking, really? Just that's it. Just there, mark something different. I'm not a patient person. I mean, I, she doesn't know what she's saying when she says that to me. But I'll take it, right? She's complimenting. But just a little bit of patience. Manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Here's another one. Kindness. Kindness manifests the fruit of the Spirit and will shock people in this post-Christian culture. Goodness 
Here's a big one we're going to touch on several times in this. Gentleness. Imagine manifesting the fruit of gentleness in response to whomever and whatever. It's just a different way of being. Third response. We'll call it convicted civility. It's not my phrase, but I love the phrase. Convicted civility. I imagine some people might be hearing all this and starting to worry. I've talked about this before, and I've gotten this feedback before. You're too accommodating, Mike. Are you suggesting we just tolerate everything happening in the culture? It sounds like you're advocating an anything-goes mentality. Some people, and I'm perfectly fine with this, get nervous that I've lost my conviction about the truth and I am advocating that we just let people do whatever they want to do and love them anyway. Well, let me tell you what troubles me. Or let me tell you what I'm worried about. Christian anger has become a sign of righteousness. And that worries me. Christian anger has become this indication that we actually care about stuff. Christian anger has become a sign that we're upholding the truth. And all that stuff worries me because Christian anger is almost always unexamined. So Christians argue and they fight and they scream and they yell and they justify it all in the name of we're upholding the truth. This comes out frequently, as you know, in the political arena. And here's the thing, Christians on both sides of the political aisle, in my view, have opted to use anger and various forms of violence to accomplish their agenda and to win. Both sides, Republican, Democrat, have opted for anger and violence to get their way. And you know what Christian anger ultimately does? It confirms the suspicions and the skepticisms of the culture. It proves that there really is nothing different about those who follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus just argue and defend a different ideology, but it doesn't actually make any real concrete difference in who they are or in how they live or in how they respond. Richard Mao, from this book I referred to earlier, Uncommon Decency, says one of the real problems in modern life is that the people who are good at being civil often lack strong convictions, and people who have strong convictions often lack civility. We need to find a way of combining a civil outlook, outlook with a passionate intensity about our convictions. The real challenge is to come up with a convicted Civility. So convicted civility is upholding the truth with immense amounts of love. It's upholding the truth and doing so with kindness. It's upholding the truth, not defensively. It's upholding the truth with gentleness and respect, to use the words in First Peter. See, people who have the truth need not be threatened by those who challenge it or disagree with it. In fact, the defensiveness 
is often an indication we may not believe it as much as we profess to. But those who have the truth, they're not defensive against those who attack it because they don't need to be, because if it is the truth, then it doesn't need our angry defensiveness. If gravity is true, but you don't happen to believe it, I don't have to angrily belittle you. I don't have to be defensive about it. I just have to demonstrate the truthfulness of gravity. And then grant you the dignity that every person on planet Earth deserves, and that is the the dignity of deciding for yourself based on what you've seen and based on what you know. So what's the takeaway in week one? The takeaway is, what would it look like to demonstrate the alternative way of the kingdom in your world this week? I have to say, one of the great gifts in a post-Christian culture is it doesn't take much to demonstrate an alternative way. It really doesn't. The fruit of love, somewhere in your setting this week. The fruit of grace, being gracious toward others. Being kind toward a stranger. Not just to muster up the energy, but Jesus, who can I demonstrate your kindness to this week? Practicing goodness. Doing something good. Jesus, bring something along my life today where I can manifest goodness. And this other one that is just going to be a theme throughout our time. Gentleness a conversation, a reaction in the closed circle of a close relationship, in the broader circle at work, something comes up, you know the drill, the pulse starts going quicker, the blood pressure rises, the face flushes red, and somewhere in the midst of all that, Jesus, help me respond gently. I don't have to scream. I don't have to yell. I'm standing on the side of truth, and the goal is not to keep people from it or beat them over the head with it. The goal is to introduce them to it, to manifest the reality of gravity, and then say, you can choose to do whatever you want with that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, what you're up to in the world. And I pray for the soul of Oak Hills that will continue to grapple with these things and will continue to consider your calling upon us to live an alternative way in this world, to reject anger, to reject screaming, to reject disgust, to reject judgment, to uphold the truth with love and kindness, to be civil and to hold our convictions in a gracious way. And so we look forward to this adventure, and I pray especially as we go out into the world this week that there will be more and more people having appointments, occasions, interactions where they know you're with them and you're working through them. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.